Thank you for listening to Bringing Down the House, a podcast of Iowa Heartland Habitat for Humanity. I'm Allie Parrish, Executive Director of Iowa Heartland Habitat, and today on Episode 3 of Season 2, Building Community, Jacqueline and I are welcoming longtime partner and past Iowa Heartland Habitat board member David Deeds. David will share about his passion for urban design, historic preservation, and how he builds community through various local partnerships and projects. Thank you for tuning in, and we invite you to join our local mission by volunteering your time or making a financial or materials donation. More information can be found on our website at webuildhabitat.org or by following Iowa Heartland Habitat for Humanity on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Well, hello, 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 everybody, and welcome back to Bringing Down the House. I am your host, Ja'Kalen Madison, alongside my lovely, talented, beautiful co-host, the Executive Director of Iowa Heartland Habitat for Humanity, Miss Allie Parrish. Woo, 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 woo. I don't even know what to say to these I intros. Mean, like, it's just, like, ridiculous. You tell me to call you that. That's the thing. <laughs> like, everyone's like, oh, Allie's so sweet and kind. No, <laughs> she's not. <laughs> She comes in here with demands. Like yep. I am a peasant. <laughs> I am I, I am shivering in a corner right now. Wow. <laughs> I'm just I'm just like trying to build empathy for myself. I that's really, really all. That, that's no. that's all it is. I, and the sad thing is the majority of people that know me yeah. already know that this is a lie uh-huh. and they have no sympathy for me whatsoever. They're just, they're just jumping lie. Like, just jumping right in, like, okay. <laughs> Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are so welcome. I mean, maybe the next, maybe the next time, like maybe I can get like a few woos or something. Okay, like you always get the woos. Okay, like I never. I'll I'll kick off the next one. Okay, there we go. You can have the next one. Good. (laughs) All right, good deal. Our guest is going to be wonderful today, and I'm super excited for everyone to get to meet him and uh, and to learn about not only what he does, but how much of an integral part he is of. Like, not only Habitat, but the community. Yes. So that's going to be awesome. Yeah. And we have a great guest. But before we get to all that, ladies and gentlemen, let's jump into our mission moment. So I work with our home buyers on home buyer selection, and I work with loan officers who make up our selection committee. On occasion, I'll have an applicant come through who's overqualified for the Habitat program. And I guess what I mean by that is... They either have too much income to qualify for our program or their credit score is outstanding and they could qualify for a conventional loan on their own. And so typically in those situations, I will refer that applicant on to one of our lending partners in hopes that they'll get a conventional home loan through a bank. And so recently I made a referral to Tina at Community Bank and Trust and I got a really nice email back from her about the referral that I'd made. And so I wanted to share that as a mission moment. So this is from Tina. I heard you were working with Ashley and sent her my way. Thank you, I appreciate the referral. These clients you refer, I am able to put in our community mortgage product, which is huge. And then I help them apply for grants as well. I just love being able to help clients become homeowners who never thought that would be possible. This is becoming a true passion and purpose, I think. Ashley told me she was so glad she found me. That made me feel so good. And I think this ties to our Habitat mission because we are still helping families reach their goal of home ownership, even though it's not directly through our program, but it's through other lending programs that may, they may never have heard of before. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that was Mandy, the uh, program director for Iowa Heartland. And, ah, uh, oh, God, I love stories like that. Yeah, I know. You know, the thing about it is, I, I think we've talked about this before, and I had this thought process before I even became involved with it. It's like, I think people just think that, you know, oh, Habitat, they just give you a home. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case at all. I mean, you literally are teaching these people how to be... Um, homeowners and they're you know they're actually purchasing these homes and it's wonderful though that we just don't leave them in the dark right you know you have people that are going the extra step and then you have members in the community as well that are like let me help this family let me help this person become a homeowner and and get a a stable place to live yeah and I, i love that too because there's so many families that need our help in the community and so when you actually encounter one that is really really close to actually qualifying through a traditional bank or what have you it's great to be able to have those local partnerships and relationships and banks that we know we can trust to send the families over and that they'll be treated with respect and they'll have a good experience we care a lot about the families that come to us to hand that off we really have to have a lot of trust with the partners that we have with the banks too so it's just another facet of of who we are and what we do and a lot of times folks don't realize that it doesn't always end up with a habitat house or a habitat loan when they start with us so i thought that was a really cool story from mandy yeah that is that's an awesome story thank you mandy for sharing oh ali you're right trust is is such a big part of it and having that community support having community members Mm -hmm. that you can trust and that are supportive of not only the the staff but the overall mission of habitat people that lead that charge and so that's why i'm actually really excited for our guest today This man truthfully is one of the most trustworthy people you could ever meet. So supportive, just outstanding to work with. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great honor to introduce the past president of the Iowa Heartland Habitat for Humanity. He is also the CFO of JSA Development. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. David Deeds. Let's welcome him to the podcast. How are you doing, Mr. Deeds? Doing great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Listen to that voice. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he just gets so excited. He came in smooth like butter. Like, (laughs) oh my god, and he's just sitting there, cool, calm, and collected. Like, well, thank you for having me on the podcast. Like, what the who is this man? Oh my gosh, it's gonna be good. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be great, Mr. Deeds. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm an accountant by training, and a lot of people don't necessarily know that. So, Mm -hmm. I um, perhaps maybe that's why I like the numbers sides of organizations as well. But Mm -hmm. you know, I grew up in the area. I went to UNI. I left the area professionally for about 14 years, last in Chicago for a number of years, and then returned the area because I thought that I wanted to try to make help help make a difference. And at the time, Waterloo had a uh, downtown riverfront revitalization plan that they had hired outside experts to help put together. And that, that plan kind of inspired me, and I wanted to do see if I could be part of it. So in the meantime, I started teaching accounting at UNI, and I've been doing that for the last 16 years now also. Had the opportunity about five years or sorry 11 years ago to work uh, start working with JSA development which is a company owned by Jim Walsh and I think we'll talk a little bit about that later mm-hmm. and just finished up six years on the habitat board here locally uh, last year as the president it's my second go-round on the board but I can tell you that the this past six years have been a lot of fun it's been great to work with Allie and uh, I think there's a, a lot of great things happening yeah it's been awesome I I don't even think I can honestly truly communicate just what what a difference David's actually made in my life, just personally, but also professionally. And not just saying that, like, because you don't just say that about anybody. But I was fortunate to meet you right after, not too long after I 
was hired on at Habitat. And I really didn't know anything much about housing. I mean, I was from, I'm from here, from Waterloo, and I didn't know a whole lot about housing outside of just what a person knows about housing in their community. I wasn't working for housing or anything in, you know, from that background. And yet I feel like I just so align with a lot of the the feelings that David has about a local community, about urban design, about housing and things like that. And so everything he was saying, he's far more educated than me. And he would just, he would say these things. I'd be like, yes, that's exactly right. You know, and I just totally agreed and um, felt the same way about in a lot of ways about some of that and just really have so appreciated and valued our time together since. So it's been so much fun. Yeah, and I've had the, the pleasure of sitting in on meetings with David. And the thing about it is, I mean, we talk about accounting. Like, that's a scary, scary thing. Beyond. And beyond scary thing. And this man just sits here and, you know, pulls out, all right, so here we go. And he just reads it like it's ABCs. And I'm just like, I'm still on, like, item one, dude. Like, <laughs> calm it down. But no, he's outstanding. Yes. So you, you, you mentioned this whole JSA development and Jim Walsh. Some people might be privy to what that is. But can you kind of expand a little bit on what JSA development is? Sure. Uh, JSA Development is a company uh, founded and owned by Jim Walsh, who's been very active in Waterloo for ever since he came here after law school. And he uh, probably about 15 or 20 years ago had started accumulating properties in downtown Waterloo, starting with an office that he had for his law firm, of which he was a partner. And I think it started off as a hobby for him. Now it's more than a hobby. But what's great about the organization is our focus is primarily on historic buildings within the downtown core. How do we utilize uh, various resources to try to make those rehabilitation projects of those buildings economically feasible, which is a challenge. And it's it's not just for new or rehabilitation. New construction of the quality that you'd like to do is sometimes very difficult in communities like ours as well. But we also try to take a little bit more of a holistic view to what, what it is that we're doing. So that's what the exciting part of it is, and uh, certainly enjoy the opportunity to work with that. But well, it's such a perfect marriage, I think, for obviously for for you with JSA, obviously your finance background and all that, but also your passion for urban design. And I want to speak to that maybe a little bit before we dive too far into that. But what would you say urban design actually is? You know, how did you get interested in it too? Yeah, so I don't have any formal training in urban design. Okay. I, it's just self-taught along the way and from observations. I will say one of the great books that I've read that, and and I'm not a voluminous book reader. Mm -hmm. I really am not which is probably odd to hear somebody who teaches accounting to say. But this one, there's one book in particular is Jane Jacobs, who was a writer in New York and then later Toronto. Uh, her first major book was The Life and Death of the Great American City. Mm. And essentially, she viewed cities as, uh, and she puts it on paper so that you can then take away from it as well, that cities are organic, meaning that they're made up of the people who live in them and that they behave in ways that the people choose to use them, right? Uh, that's different than particularly at the time, and you still see it from a formal urban planning process where there's often a, we want X, Y, or Z, and we think people will use it this way, but in fact, that's not actually how people will use it. Mm-hmm. And so we have to think about how people actually use spaces, and by spaces, I mean recreational spaces, living spaces, uh, workspaces, common spaces in the community, parks, anything, streets, roads, mm-hmm. whatever they happens to be, it's important that the user's perspective is part of that design process. Mm. 
And so that's what kind of gets me excited about uh, how, what we get to do here. And when I think back, and we can kind of come back to this later also, but mm-hmm. when when first outreach to, to me to join the Habitat board, I didn't say yes right away. Mm-hmm. I said, I, I want to meet Allie and I want to talk to Allie and see what her perspective is on what Habitat's doing. Because I think Habitat's a very powerful, can be a very powerful organization. And I think it more powerful than perhaps at, uh, it had been doing great things, mm-hmm. but I think it could have done more. And I think it is now doing more than, than what it was. And I think that's what's exciting about where the Iowa Heartland Habitat has come, come to at this point is that it's not only about helping individual families become homeowners, which helps them build wealth and generational wealth, hopefully, which are transformative in their own ways for those individual homeowners, but done correctly in enough concentration, they can also change the community around them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I find exciting. Yeah. So uh, you and I are both travelers at heart, I think. And I know that you've traveled extensively and visit different places. And I know that from our conversations that you bring back some ideas or you see what works well in other communities and then you, you figure out ways to help our community maybe see those opportunities. What makes a place, you know, some place in your opinion that people really want to be or what makes a, a city really unique and some, what are some of those places that you've been that stand out? I do like to travel. Part of yeah. it is a desire for a, a bit of sanity as well. <laughs> Amen. Um, Me too. Amen. Yeah, and uh, sometimes you just need a break, yeah. right? But having said that, my partner long ago realized that every trip, even a vacation, is still part, in my head, still part work. Yeah. Because I'm taking photos, I'm looking for things that I like that seem to work and people are using and just compiling these. There's no large formal document that contains all these things. It's mostly the camera roll in my iPhone, right? Yeah. Or stored somewhere. But if I'm looking for something, then I can scroll back for it. Or if I know there's an active issue we're working on I, I and I see it when I'm on a trip, uh, I'm going to take a picture of it and I'm going to bring it back into the conversation. So, mm-hmm. you know, somebody a long time... T- told me and I, I, don't, I don't know that they came up with the thought there are very few new ideas in the world mm-hmm. it's just a matter of how you take ideas others have impl- or started and how you can frame that and implement that in a way that works for your community but there's a lot of common good ideas that we can all benefit from so um, you know I'll give one example I generally tend to prefer to go to cities mm-hmm. when I go places mm-hmm. because at least dense more dense cities right to the Chicago New York um, you European cities, mm-hmm. uh, certainly not just exclusively, but those are kind of some of my favorites because those are the closest to having, in, in my mind, a complete organic symbiosis, if you will, mm-hmm. in terms of how they function, right? And there's not one right solution for every person. It's just like if you look at our local communities and most communities across America, there's one way to get from one place to another, and it's a personal car, right? But that doesn't necessarily reflect what we need as a community. So I look for those kinds of things as I go. One of of the examples I can relate to is we were talking about the Franklin Street reconstruction Mm -hmm. as it relates to the Walnut neighborhood effort that we've been working on. Mm -hmm. So... Franklin Street, for those that don't know, is a major corridor that also serves as a kind of physical and mental boundary between the north side of downtown Waterloo and the Walnut Street neighborhood, literally just across the street. Mm -hmm. And one of the conversations we were talking about is, well, you know, we should really try to get the city to rethink how they approach that corridor so that it benefits both 
downtown and the Walnut neighborhood and knits those neighborhood that neighborhood back together with the downtown. A lot of this, what we're doing here is about momentum mm -hmm. also. So if you've got good momentum on one side of Franklin Street, which downtown generally has, it's mm -hmm. not all the way where it needs to be. And the effort in Walnut now has good momentum, but why not tie those two momentums together, right? So I was on a trip to Chicago, somewhere along Milwaukee Avenue, which has higher traffic counts than Franklin Street does. Mm -hmm. The city of Chicago had recently done what's called a road diet on Milwaukee. And I brought some back some pictures. I put it, printed them out and I passed around our, our coalition meeting and said, see, this is how this can be done. Mm -hmm. And this is on a street that has higher traffic counts than our own street does. So it's part of that trying to find things that work elsewhere in similar or more, in this case, higher traffic situations and how do we bring it back? Now, having said that, bringing it back to our group, which has generally favorable to changing things, <laughs> does not get us all the way there, right. as we all know. So. Right. I think that's that's so key, though, is just that inspiration that you can find and, and not just stopping with, well, this is what we do or this is what we know <clears throat> or we can't or what have you. But there are so many great examples out there of, of people that do and have. I was just reminded I was actually just in Chicago myself and we were in a situation where we were on a tour and they were reminding us that the last fire basically that burned down in the entirety of, of Chicago was like in 1871 or whatever it was. And I was thinking to myself, um, the house, one of the houses that we rehabbed in Walnut was built in 1889. So not that long after the great fire of Chicago in 1871. And you think about how Chicago has been built up around a river in that fairly, really short period of time. And our community probably similar aged in some ways. And just, you know, there's obviously momentum, like you said, and things like that, but things can be done, you know, and um, it wasn't that Chicago has been there like someplace in Spain since the 1200s. I mean, you know, Chicago is a fairly young town and um, and they're figuring it out as they go. But there's so, such cool things there too. I think that's really important because that was, you know, it's something I think that's why I've appreciated you so much too, David, is just like, these are things as I go places, I think about the places that I want to spend time and there's a feel in those places and the, the height of the buildings and the close feel of the street, things like that, that you just want to spend time there, but you don't often stop and think about what is the design here that is helping me to want to spend time here. And that's what you've really given voice to in our dialogue, which I've really appreciated. That's exactly the way to look at it as well, right? I think I remember, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I remember you mentioning that one of the mm -hmm. times that you said you just came back for a trip and she thought, I just looked at it differently. Yeah. And that was exciting to me because yeah. I, I knew I'd gotten through to somebody. Oh, yeah. Right? So <laughs> I'm drinking the food. <laughs> but, but that's just it. I think what you hit on right there is a very important point is the fact that you have to ask yourself, why do I want to be here? Mm -hmm. Right? What is it about the physical space? And, and, Myself, I'm I'm a drawn very much to the physical attributes of things. Mm -hmm. um, some would say I'm not the warmest person, so <laughs> that I'm not the, the handholder right. consoler. I wish I was more of that. But I look at the physical environment and I watch people and see how they're interacting with the space or if they're not. It's just like sometimes we have these uh, projects, and it's not just here, but we have plenty of examples of here where people are proposing something and saying, well, we're going to do this, we're going to build this, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And the question that I think should always be asked of the designers is describe the situation in which you, the designer, would use that space. 
Mm-hmm. And if they don't have an answer to that, then maybe that space shouldn't be built. Mm-hmm. So true. There's an example of one. I won't get real specific right now. There's an example of one being constructed right now that I would love to ask the designers, under which scenario, what scenario would you go use that space? And I guarantee the answer, would a truthful answer would be never. Right. Right. So then why are we building it there? We all have limited resources. The city has limited resources. Habitat has limited resources. Individuals have limited resources. So we have to spend the resources we have wisely and get the most benefit. So that's an important thing. And and I would encourage anybody, you guys or anybody that's listening, if if you see something that's like, this really doesn't seem to make sense, Mm -hmm. ask the person who's going to use it and when are they going to use it? How often are they going to use it? And, you know, the answer is never everyone's going to use it. And all the time is not the answer because that's very nonspecific, right? Right. Have a describe a situation in which they would actually use that space themselves. You know, let me ask you this, David. Why downtown Waterloo? As you talk about how you like to travel and it's the density, you know, a place like Chicago, New York, Minneapolis, even in the state of Iowa, you know, Waterloo isn't as dense as a place like Des Moines. So why why downtown Waterloo? Well, part of that, I'm sure, is just uh, happenstance of where I was born. Yeah. So Thank that's... goodness for us. <laughs> exactly. That, that we, we are very lucky there. Yeah. Well, and for most of us, you know, not all of us, but for most of us, we are a function to some extent of where we're born. And that's not something we choose. We just, it just is. So having said that, my younger years were on an acreage south of town on near Eagle Center, which is a kind of a crossroads. But my parents always worked in Waterloo. Cedar Falls and we always interacted there. So there's something about Waterloo's history that I've always been attracted to because it's history as a urban or actually a regional center. Uh, It was more urban at one point than it is today. And by urban, I mean dense and center focused and so forth. And it's that that history that always intrigued me. I mean, the fact that we had multiple streetcar lines until the mid-30s says something about the importance of the community, you know, up through a certain period of time. The inner urban that ran from Waverly through Waterloo, Cedar Falls, and down to Cedar Rapids. We had three train lines that ran 20-some trains a day out of here, passenger trains going to different destinations. Chicago, Minneapolis, Kansas City, Des Moines. So, this was an urban hub, and that always kind of intrigued me, right? The history of John Deere has always intrigued me, and the fact that John Deere is here and still such a major player is, I think, an exciting thing, and it makes us different, than, fortunately, than a lot of other cities like ourselves. I mean, we are fortunate that the John Deere continues to be here and has continues to reinvest the way they have in this community, the Cedar Valley broad, more broadly, but Waterloo specifically. So it was that that history which always caused me as a kid to i liked history i'm a little probably still am geeky but um but, in the coolest way ever well, i mean you. geeks are cool dude come on but I, I so it was that history that always intrigued me and that so that's why the focus was so then you know i the renaissance plan i continued to follow the area i actually never lived in waterloo until i moved back i had lived south of town and in cedar falls prior to me moving back and then i plopped myself right on mulberry street Mm-hmm. And I've uh, lived there ever since in a house that had been foreclosed on and mm-hmm. a couple times in the previous decade. And so, you know, I threw myself into it and said, well, let's try to make a difference. I also like the fact that I used to, I did a Cedar Valley Leadership Institute bus tour once, I don't know, 10 years ago. Uh, they asked me to give a tour of downtown while riding around on the bus, which is, by the way, in a vehicle is not necessarily how you should see a community, mm-hmm. a, a neighborhood. You're a proponent of walking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You see a lot more yeah. and a lot of different things when you walk. Mm-hmm. Now, 
uh, what I sold them at the time was is that what, one of the things I liked about Waterloo is the fact that Waterloo more closely reflected at least ethnically and racially the rest of the country mm-hmm. than Iowa does. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, at this point, we don't economically reflect the rest of the country the same way. So that's one of our challenges. The Cedar Valley as a whole economically reflects the rest of the country. So that's kind of where one of our gaps is at, right? But mm-hmm. anyway, as, a, as you can tell, I could go on and talk about this forever. So it. it's wonderful. I'll stop there. I think, um, you know, when you think about Waterloo, we think about JSA. So maybe that flexing that muscle, a little bit of the two-sided nature of, of your life kind of with, with academia and, and this development side. I have learned so much too in the sense of the really the importance of that restoration versus you know the demolition and new building through our dialogues and just my time at habitat but a lot of people don't understand that still you know there's a lot of people and they never will it's going to be constant education but i think when we got involved in walnut for the first time early on and we took on a couple of those houses that everybody driving by you know that's a teardown that's a teardown and why and then when we said well no we're going to save them we're going to try you know and why would you ever consider doing that and just honestly like they were just literally floored like we were like crazy you know and um so could maybe you could speak to that a little bit in your experience about the history and and restoring yeah you know if i'd been on that trip i would have wanted to ask the person so why do you think it's a teardown true I mean, I think that's a fair question to ask back to that question, to that statement, right? Right. And I think they would say, my guess is it it looks horrible. It can't be saved. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's that that does happen a lot. And it's part of, I think, our disposable consumerist nature we as a country have Mm -hmm. is that eh, it's disposable. We'll just throw it away. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of buildings today newer ones not necessarily housing but commercial structures very often unless they're built by the largest corporations who want to be a, a kind of a, a statement piece they're pretty disposable buildings right mm-hmm. right and you know i think that's a terrible way to approach your community right, right. uh if you look back through our history people built buildings that were of a certain quality and of a certain appearance because they wanted to make a positive statement about the place they chose to live yeah and the buildings reflect how much not just buildings but are one of the points that reflect how we value ourselves as Absolutely. a community. Other things do too. How well we take care of what we have, how well we take care of the people that we have, right? So those things all reflect how much we care about ourselves as a community. Because most of us, for one reason or another, have chosen to either live here or have chosen to remain here, mm-hmm. right? So anyway, back to your point about restoration. So I think there's several different angles here. One, one angle, first of all, is the history. And the fact that these buildings are multi multi-generationally old mm-hmm. they are part of the record keeper of our history if you think about it that way you are just the caretaker the latest in a line of caretakers of that particular piece of history but now the goal is to make it usable for every different piece step in the way mm-hmm. and make it economically viable because it has to be that too right we can't all have just a whole bunch of house museums that that doesn't work either. Right. So we are caretakers along those lines. So it tells us as a community where we've come from, where, we're, where we've been, and, and to hopefully somewhat inform where we're going. The other part of it, I would say, is from a green perspective, right? right? There's a lot of good quality building material in these buildings that otherwise, in most cases, are not being recycled. If they are torn down, they're going straight out to the landfill and they're getting buried in a giant mound that 
never to be seen again until somebody in the future says, what were they doing? Why did they put all this stuff here? Right. So there's that. And I'll give you an example of this. You know, we're rehabbing the, doing historic rehab on 519 East 3rd Street, mm-hmm. the se- second house over on 3rd Street. And I was talking about that project and for that matter, our other current project, which is at uh, 5th and Jefferson Streets. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, well, geez, are you really affected by these lumber prices increasing? I said, well, no, not really. We're The yep. lumber we're using is already in the building, exactly. right? And it's been there for 100 plus years. Right. So there is a material savings that we're keeping not only out of the landfill, but we're also not creating new. And and quite honestly, the, the, the materials that are in those buildings, particularly the wood, you know, that, that was old growth timber. Mm-hmm. Where the lumber you buy today is not old growth timber. It's the fastest growing stuff that you can find, and mm-hmm. therefore it is not nearly as hard, less more susceptible to rot, all those kinds of reasons. So this old growth timber that's in these buildings is solid. Solid. Mm-hmm. If you pick one up and you compare it to a new two by four, you could feel the difference in wow. the weight of them. And so there's a lot there's that reason as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it also the fact that you can take something that looks so bad and turn it into something that looks so good is very exciting in itself. So exciting. And it's so much more inspiring, I think, when you see those transformations in person and you see this structure that 9.9 people out of 10 would have torn down and it just looks sad and, and abandoned and, and to see it have a new life, you know, is super exciting. And I've, I've really loved that aspect but one of the things you've you know also mentioned too as another side is the qual the type of job that you're mm-hmm. you're supporting with the historic restoration especially what yeah. jsa does is you're really using those skilled workers that are you know flexing a different muscle people that restore windows versus the just pit it up as fast as you can you know um, it's a different type of labor that you're really supporting it, yeah absolutely and that and that's good that's part of our argument as well is that's good for the community because yeah. higher skilled jobs require higher skilled people who then generally get paid more, and that yeah. helps overall economic value or income in the in the community. You mentioned restoring windows, for example. Mm-hmm. You know the the both of the current projects we're working on, those are being restored by a set of craftsmen who are um, you know they take them out, they take them to their shop, they completely rebuild the window. It's still the same wood. If the glass can be saved, it'll be reused. Mm-hmm. But they're putting them back together as if they're new, and then they they're reinstalled. You know, so that we get maximum weather benefit fit from it we get a high quality uh, storm window that we apply on the outside which is new material but between the two of them we've got a better window than most new windows that you can buy at this point and certainly will last i mean the windows that we've just restored lasted 100 120 years well maybe they can get another 100 years out exactly right exactly and so yeah that rather than kind of more just the rote production right. of often new construction, right? Yeah, so. and, you're, and you're helping keep a craft alive, exactly. you know? We're running out of time here. Great conversation. But there's one thing I want to go back to. And, you know, David, you said that before you agreed to join the board, you had a conversation with Allie. Mm-hmm. And I just want to know what in that conversation led you to not only become a to to partner with the habitat but to be on the board for six years what in that conversation led you to make that decision some money <laughs> i'm just kidding underground you know uh, like, I, wait, slipped him a 20 uh, so wait, 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 <laughs> you get paid uh, hold up now uh, we need to have a conversation no, no actually i think we pay 
<laughs> yeah, actually, that sounds more accurate. It is the nonprofit way. That is the that is the best way of putting it. Volunteer and write me a check. <laughs> I'm really, really, I'm mean. <laughs> See what did I tell you at the beginning, ladies and gentlemen? What did I tell you? But well, the point is, and that's actually a, a well-functioning nonprofit. You you need people who are not only committed with their time, but either with their own resources or are willing to ask those who have better resources to provide resources, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes people on our board aren't in a position necessarily to be financially contributors, but they probably know someone who might be, mm -hmm. right? So they can play a role in that way as well. So, but certainly time is the first thing you're asked for. But back to that point of the conversation, it was coming back to my point earlier is, is that we can achieve our core mission of helping individual families build generational wealth by building homes that they buy and then they build equity in and that someday may get passed along to their children, right? And that's what I mean by generational wealth, mm -hmm. right? For most Americans, their main savings asset is their house that they own. So the extent that you put people into those houses. The, the other part of that, though, is, is beyond that, I wanted to know that Habitat's approach, at least the local Habitat's approach, was going to be perhaps a bit more expansive than that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's this example of focusing on Walnut to start with. It's a church row effort that's really kind of in its earliest stages. That if you focus your effort and you are able to bring in other resources, and Allie does a fantastic job of bringing in other resources and other organizations. She makes it look easy. I know it's not, <laughs> but she makes it look easy. You bring these and you bring them into focus in a concentrated area where people can see a difference. It's not only going to help that Habitat home buyer it's going to help everything around it, right? We've been talking about whether it's Walnut or it's Church Row, the focus has to be very geographically defined, enough that people can see a physical difference and focused on corridors that people see. You have to be enough of a change agent that people can see and feel that real change is happening. And that's what I wanted to hear from Habitat. And that's really the direction that the Habitat's been going for the last six years. Wonderful. It's been super fun. And, and um, we would be, you know, off to not mention that uh, David sits on the Walnut Neighborhood Housing Coalition as, uh, you know, kind of representing JSA um, in that component because JSA is a partner in our Walnut Neighborhood Housing Coalition and a really key partner in bringing in that market rate, you know, kind of historic component to the housing plan really that is in Walnut. But then also all these other elements that David's been talking about just in urban design and thinking on the systems around the neighborhood, in the neighborhood, and all those kinds of things, um, the streets, the trees, how people do life, and all of that's super important as well. So it's yes. been a really fun partnership with David in particular, but JSA has done amazing work in in the neighborhood and in our downtown community, and it's been really neat to to see that all happen as well. Yeah, and, you know, and, and David, thank you just for everything that you do, not only for the community, but for Habitat, serving on the board, uh, being the president, you know, six years on the board, being Allie's personal accounting tutor. Uh, <laughs> she's learned that on her own. <laughs> I mean, you know, I you definitely just... got farther because of this. I mean, you just, he is a man of just everything, a jack of all trades, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. But no, it, it has been, a, I, have, I have truthfully, I have uh, enjoyed just getting to know you uh, these past couple of years. And it has been a pleasure working with you and learning from you. And I mean, if I had the guts to take accounting, 
I would. <laughs> because I think it would be, I would love to just be in your class, but I don't have the guts to take accounting. So I, you won't see me in your class, unfortunately. I understand. <laughs> we just won't go down that road. We won't go down that road. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, David Deeds, thank you so much for joining us today. You're going to stick around, though, for a little trivia, right? Oh, sure. Oh, good, 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 good. Uh, Let's get ready for some trivia. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here is our uh, producer, Nora. Hello. It's good to be back. We touched a little bit upon this in the podcast, so I think David might know the answer, but hopefully not, or hopefully so, whatever you're (laughs) wishing. But when restoring a building, it's really important to know the specific age of the building and the materials in need of repairs in case you do need to replace them and to bring them back to their traditional state. And so what is one of the most common ways that is used to determine the age of wood in a building? Oh my goodness. David probably knows the answer wow. to this. How do you determine the age of wood in a building? Determine the age of wood in a building. <laughs> I'm writing it down he as if it's going to help me. He might I, be I stumped. I think I am stumped on this one. <laughs> uh, I'm really curious, actually. Okay. I'm going to jump in. I feel like it's going to be something in the um, hardness of the wood, if that makes any yeah, sense I was at say all. Density. density. Oh, yeah. Okay. I say hardness. Yeah, you no. two come back density. I mean, sorry, Allie. I'm just saying. No, but I think, yeah, exactly. I think you're right. Like, is it close to being petrified or not? You know, like... (laughs) Well, hopefully it's not that old. Good lord. Why is... Is anyone habitating that house? No one should be in that house. (laughs) You'd have a stone house at that point. Well, I mean, you know, they're pretty strong. I mean, I think we're... I think we're probably all of the same wavelength here because I put a stress test. Like, Mm. is there any way that they can, like stress the wood or what whatever to to see like oh this is not good mm-hmm. okay so that's where we're going with we're kind of all on the same page all right so it's actually how they cut it so different oh sawmills in different times used to use different cutting methods and so it's the cut marks or patterns on the wood because everyone knows that oh my gosh it does make a ton of sense it though. does yes actually yeah okay let's not play into that <laughs> Okay. Well, it, it, yes, logically it makes sense. Okay, <laughs> calm down. I bet you. I bet you can use density too. I, I mean, think you can. can. I think density would work. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> how it was cut. That's you know, fascinating I, though. I wonder how often they changed their processes. Yeah, like, right by decade. By I'm gonna make. I'm gonna find. I'm gonna find a saw from the 1800s and have a house <laughs> completely constructed of that just to throw people off. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so boom, there goes your little logic. We'll just look at the, we'll just look at the marks on the wood. No. Sorry, I'm upset. I'm upset. He's pouting. He's I'm pouting not pouting. In his I, corner. Actually it's sad. I am pouting. Like my arms are <laughs> My arms are this is like textbook child Jacqueline. Arms my crossed. arms are folded. I'm like hunched over. I'm upset. Bottom lip is out. <laughs> I was upset. I was upset. 
I Why love is there it. a picture? There's photo. There's gonna be there's, a picture showing your pout. There's photo. There's probably a lot of pictures of me pouting somewhere in this world. We just don't need to find them. Oh my gosh, we need to go, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us. A bit, another big thank you to our wonderful guest, uh, David Deeds, for just sharing all of his knowledge. And it, I, I'm actually very happy that we were able. To, sorry, I ripped a piece of paper. It wasn't my pants. Um, I was. I, I am very happy that we were able to highlight just some of the work that he has done his organization has done and just it's it's wonderful to be able to to highlight the the movers and the shakers in this community Absolutely. so thank you so much for joining us david thank you uh yeah and uh please don't do my job so <laughs> ladies and gentlemen uh, that's all the time we have for you today thank you so much for joining us on the podcast i'm jacayla madison she is ali Parrish. we will see you right back here at the same place you found us next time take care